Thank you, worship team. They really brought it today, didn't they? Thank you for leading us in worship. Please turn your Bible to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. We were been thinking about joy this morning. I was reminded um, in Sunday school we were talking about um, the effect of the Gospel on Martin Luther's life and how it affected his joy. He just became this joy. Once he kind of had come to the place, he had been wrestling with his own sinfulness and just the burden of his sin and the guilt of his sin and how he could be right before a holy God. And when he began to understand what the gospel was and put his faith in Christ, just how it revolutionized his life in terms of the joy that he had. Just the joy for Christ. And a lot of that was imitated or expressed in singing. Singing at home, singing in church. And a lot of our great hymns of the faith come from Luther who was trying to express the the profound truths of the gospel in a way that would communicate the joy that we have as believers. It was really, really a good time of worship this morning. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. Uh, we're coming today to one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And just in hearing from some of you beforehand, knowing where we would be today, it sounds like it's a favorite passage of many of yours as well. It's the account of the post-resurrection appearance of Christ to two travelers on the road to Emmaus. It's the longest of the, of the post-resurrection accounts of the risen Jesus in all of the Gospels. Many people love this story because in addition to the truth that is communicated in this passage, there's a lot of drama as well. There's humor. There's a lot of funny parts in this story. There's humor. There's irony. There's passion and surprise. There's the full range of emotions from despair and hopelessness to, to joy and great hope. There's even biblical doctrine and, and the interpretation of the scriptures that comes out in this. But the thing that stands out most to me is just the radical shift from utter hopelessness to the revival of hope. For the two travelers that are, have set out here on the road to Emmaus, as they're walking and making their journey, for them all hope is lost. But when a traveling stranger joins them, he convinces them that not only is all hope not lost, but that their hope has actually been fulfilled. And the restoration of that hope brings with it great joy, as we've sung this morning, and also purpose for life, mission for life. Let's look at the passage. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 13 and go to verse 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb 
early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I want to look at this passage in three parts. This morning, verses 13 to 24. We're going to see a lament for hope lost. In verses 25 to 27, we see that hope is revived revived through the truth of the Scriptures. And then in verses 28 to 35, we'll see that hope is revived in the appearance of the risen Christ. So first, a lament for hope lost, verses 13 to 24. This passage occurs, it says in verse 13, that very day. That's the day on which the women went to the tomb earlier that morning in verse 1. They had gone to the tomb, they had found it empty. It was on this very day, later in that day, that two travelers returned to their home in Emmaus. Emmaus is a village about seven miles to Jerusalem, probably to the west or northwest. We don't exactly know where Emmaus is, but we know from the text the distance. It was seven miles from Jerusalem. These travelers are disciples of Jesus, but they were not part of the 11, the 11 apostles, the 11 remaining apostles, those who were closest to Jesus. We know from verse 18 that one of them was named Cleopas, while the other one is not named at all. They had probably traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It's what was required by the Old Testament law. They had perhaps even gone to celebrate the Passover with Jesus. But now that the Passover is over, these two disciples return back to their homes. And as they're walking, they also, we see in verses 14 and 15, are talking. And they're rehashing the events that have transpired in Jerusalem over the course of the past few days. In fact, the word, uh, the word discussing in verse 15 indicates an emotional and passionate conversation. It can be translated as debate or even dispute. So these two disciples were discussing the, the wide range of things that had happened over the weekend. And they're very passionately discussing, maybe even arguing and debating and disputing about what they have witnessed and what they have heard. They're, they're weighing those events. They're weighing the veracity of those events. They're interpreting the significance of those events. They're processing their own emotions because of those events. They're trying to, to understand and, and reconcile their, their beliefs about Jesus and about what Jewish doctrine had taught about the Messiah. They're trying to understand these events in light of the political and religious context in which they lived. And it was a very passionate, vigorous 
discussion. In fact, we know what they talk about because they relate it to this stranger that joins them later on in verses 19 to 24, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But they're discussing, they're passionately debating these things, and along the way, this stranger joins them in verses 15 and 16. And of course, we know by reading ahead, and even Luke tells us in verse 15 that it was Jesus who who drew near to them. So we know what the disciples themselves do not yet know, that this stranger is the risen Christ. In fact, in verse 16, they are providentially kept, it says, from recognizing him. That word recognize means to know thoroughly or to know accurately. And because they were disciples, they would have known Jesus very well. But God providentially kept them from recognizing who this stranger was. And that's because Jesus must teach them, later on we'll see, from the Scriptures, so that they might know that what Jesus endured was necessary as part of His Messianic ministry. And of course, this is beneficial not just for them and for the eleven when they report to them later at the end of the story, but also for all Christians, for us sitting in this room. This is important for us to know and to hear so that we might be confirmed in our faith that the resurrection did indeed occur. Well, Jesus approaches these two disciples. He joins them on their journey. And as they walk together, he hears their discussion. And of course, again, the, 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 the topics of discussion, the tone of the discussion really catches his attention. And so he questions them about it in verse 17. He says, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And their response to him conveys both a sense of incredulity as well as sorrow. At this question, notice in verse 17, it says that they stood still. They stopped walking momentarily, really in disbelief that this stranger would be the only person who had not heard about the events that transpired in Jerusalem over the course of the last several days. Anyone in Jerusalem should know what has happened. How could this guy not know what's happened? The events were so public. The rumors, which seem to have spread widely, are so shocking. And so they asked him in verse 18, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Can you really believe this? You don't know? Everybody knows. They're incredulous that this stranger wouldn't know. But their incredulity gives way even more to sorrow because it says that they looked sad. They're crestfallen. Partly because one that they loved has died such a cruel death, but also partly because the hopes that they had about this one have been dashed. There's also much confusion swirling because there are reports about the tomb being empty and angelic visions that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Nothing is making sense and this perplexity is compounding their sadness. Now, of course, Jesus knows what has happened. In fact, he knows it better than they do. But by questioning them, the disciples open themselves up to Jesus and Jesus draws himself into their conversation so that he can make sense of it. Jesus is going to make sense of their confusion. He is going to address their sorrow so that it can be turned to joy. Well, in verses 19 and 24, the disciples explain the source of their angst. And as we see in verse 19, it all centers around this man named Jesus of Nazareth. And they identify him in verse 19 as a prophet. 
That designation of being a prophet points to Jesus' divine calling and ministry. God had set Jesus apart to do his divinely sanctioned work, just like he did for the prophets in the Old Testament. And they describe what this means, that Jesus, they said, was mighty in word, that he spoke God's word to the people both powerfully and boldly. He was speaking in such a way as to call the people to repent of their sins and to trust in, in, in the salvation that he was bringing to them through Messiah. He was also mighty indeed, it says. He performed miraculous works that could only be done by God's power. There was something different about Jesus and the things that he did. He was faithful. This prophet, they say, this Jesus of Nazareth was faithful to obey God in all things. And, and he did God's work publicly, publicly. He did it in the presence of the Jewish people. Now, while Jesus was indeed a prophet, there is a correct identification of Jesus. Jesus is indeed a prophet. The word prophet does not sufficiently describe who Jesus is. In other words, if the only word that we use to describe Jesus, the only word that they use to describe Jesus is the word prophet, it's true, it's correct, but it's not enough. There's more information, there's more identification that must be given. Many of the Jews, in fact, perceived Jesus to be a prophet because he was mighty in word and deed. And as Jesus proclaimed the gospel, as he taught powerfully the kingdom, about the kingdom of God, as he did these miraculous works, people came to him looking to benefit from his prophetic ministry. But his disciples believed that he was more than a prophet, that he was the Christ, that he was the one who had come to redeem Israel. So Jesus' prophetic ministry was part of his larger ministry. And it's interesting to me that these disciples, who would have confessed that Jesus was indeed the Christ, now merely refer to him as a prophet. It seems to me that in their minds they have downgraded Jesus. Jesus has been downgraded from Christ to merely prophet. He came to redeem Israel, but he fell short. The reason why they perceived that he fell short was because of what happened to him in verse 20. The Jewish leaders, the chief priests, and the rulers took Jesus into custody they eventually handed him over to the Roman authorities to be put to death. We've seen that story. They compelled Pilate, the Roman governor, to condemn Jesus to death. And, of course, Pilate did their bidding and crucified Jesus. All of this happened on Friday just a few days earlier, they say. Well, this Jesus of Nazareth is the one that they had hoped would redeem Israel. In fact, verse 21, I think, has got to be one of the saddest verses in the Bible if you just take it out of context, right? If we don't know the rest of the story, if we are in their position, this is, this is just soul-crushing. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They are expressing their now-fated belief that Jesus was the Christ. They believed that he was the one who was bringing in God's kingdom and the salvation for God's people that it would bring, that he would bring. This one, this Jesus of Nazareth was going to redeem Israel. And he was going to do it soon because there's a Greek word here in this verse that is not translated, in the, in, at least in the ESV translation. It would read this way, but we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. So it's not just that he was going to redeem Israel at some point. He was going to do it soon. 
He was in the process of doing it. It was about to happen. But now his crucifixion has dashed that dream. And so they indicate that, like the other disciples, they believe that Jesus was more than a political messiah, but he was at least a political messiah. Those dreams are gone. From the perspective of these two disciples, verse 21 is, is soul-crushing. It's a, it expresses their sorrow, their sad countenance that we saw back in verse 17. The thing that they had hoped for most had dissipated over the course of just a few hours. In fact, the word that is translated there as, as had hoped really in the Greek it indicates more of a continuing hope. It wasn't just a, a fly-by-night hope. It wasn't just a momentary hope. From the time that they first encountered Jesus until the time he was crucified on the cross, they were hoping that hope was, was continual. It was abiding. It was sustaining them. And now that Jesus has been crucified, that hope is gone. And with that hope gone, it's as if they are completely lost. They are befuddled. They're dumbfounded. They don't know now what to do. Where do they go from here? They're going back home, but now to what? Let me just say here for just a moment, I think it applies here, that if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, they would have been absolutely justified to be so hopeless and heartbroken. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19, that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we, as his followers, are of all people most to be pitied. Why is that true? Because, he says in verse 17, our faith is futile. And in verse 14, that our faith is in vain. And our faith is futile and in vain because we are still in our sins. There is no one to save us apart from a resurrected Christ. To believe Jesus without believing that He has been raised from the dead is to put our hope in a dead man who can do nothing for us. If the wages of sin is death, working backwards, it would, his death would indicate that Jesus himself needed someone to save him. How can we trust him for salvation if he remains in the tomb? With no resurrection, we're still in our sins. Our sins are worthy of God's justice. And so with no Christ to save us, we await his righteous eternal wrath under the delusion that this dead man could possibly save us and so these disciples would be justified in their hopelessness we would be justified in our hopelessness if christ had not indeed been raised from the dead but the same kind of hopelessness i think must also exist for those who do not put their faith and trust in christ the one who has been raised from the dead if you happen to be here this morning there are some new faces it's good to see some new faces this morning but if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus as your only hope of salvation I would just ask you lovingly kindly what are you hoping in and can you be confident of that hope what makes you confident of that hope that that, that thing you're hoping in you're trusting in would somehow give you salvation is it yourself is it your good works is it, is it in some religious commitment? Is it in simply going to church? Is it in something else, in someone else? How can you be confident that what you are hoping in will indeed fulfill itself, will indeed bring that salvation that you seek? It's the height of absurdity to hope in something that cannot fulfill what you need 
or what it promises. So if you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, the one who was raised from the dead, just to be honest with you, that you have nothing substantial to hope in. You're devoid of hope. There's no other hope to offer you, which is why I plead with you to trust in Christ, to trust in the one who laid down his life for your sins and whom God raised from the dead. In his death and resurrection, he saves us from our sins. He's forgiving your sins. He offers you real life and salvation. And we can have confident assurance that what he has promised in his death and resurrection is true and will happen. The only hope that we have for this life and the next, the only hope that we have for the forgiveness of our sins and for salvation from death and God's wrath is Jesus who was raised from the dead. The hopelessness of these two disciples is not justified because Christ was raised from the dead. What they thought had been lost had actually been fulfilled, although they don't know it yet. Jesus is going to explain that to them in just a few minutes. Now, beyond what's just happened to Jesus in verses 19 and 20 and 21, beyond just their dashed hopes in, in him and what they thought he would bring, their grief and their confusion is compounded by the fact that there are these reports that Jesus is, that his tomb is empty, that he has been raised from the dead. These women that we read about last week and looked at last week had gone to the tomb and found it empty and, and they had this vision of angels. They saw these angels who announced that, that the reason why the tomb was empty was because Jesus was alive. And this report, they say, is utterly shocking. In fact, the word amazed there in some contexts means to be out of one's mind. Or to be insane. In other words, this report that the women are bringing is pure insanity. It's the delusion of lunatics. They are, they are fantasy. They are, it must be made up. They must be crazy to come back and say something as foolish as this. But to compound the insanity of this thought is that there are other disciples who had gone to the tomb as the women did and found it just as the women had said. They confirmed their testimony. And so this, this adds to even more their perplexity. There's reports that Jesus is alive. Those reports are unbelievable because dead people don't come back alive. That just doesn't happen. Even though they witness it in Jesus' ministry, these things just don't happen. It's absurd. It's impossible. To complicate matters even more, in verse 24, they say, there's all these reports that Jesus is alive, no one has actually seen him. There's no confirmation that he actually is is alive. It's just at this point an unverified rumor. Well, these two disciples need to understand that they've processed the information wrongly. They've observed. They have observation. They hear the reports, but they've processed the information wrongly. They lament over a hope lost without realizing that that hope, their hope, has actually been fulfilled. And not just fulfilled, but fulfilled to the fullest degree. Now this traveling stranger has joined them. Not only does he question them, he's about to help them understand how this hope has indeed been fulfilled. He begins the process of reviving their hope and showing how it has been fulfilled, first by reminding them of the truth of Scripture, and then by revealing himself, the risen Christ, to them. So let's look at how he does that. Let's look first at the hope revived in the truth of Scripture, verses 25 to 27. Jesus sets out the process of trying to restore their hope by first 
rebuking and, 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 and confronting Cleopas and this, his companion. In verse 25, he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That rebuke is meant to kind of startle them, to wake them up, to confront them, to expose that they have thought wrongly about the situation and to help them see the truth that they have failed to see. The word O there that precedes the foolish ones, O foolish ones, is, is meant to be an attention grabber in Greek. It's as if, it's as if they are in a, in a theological slumber and Jesus is shaking them to wake them up to the truth of what has happened. And Jesus also expresses their unbelief here by calling them foolish ones and slow of heart. In other words, they have not believed rightly what the Scripture said or what Jesus taught. We know from Scripture that the, the, the foolish ones are the opposite of the wise ones. We go back to Proverbs where that, that contrast re, re, reappears over and over again. Those who are wise fear the Lord and, and orient themselves to the truth of His Word, but fools reject God. They don't take His Word seriously. In the New Testament, foolishness is an attribute of the unregenerate who need God's salvation or who are walking erroneously out of step with the Lord's Word. They're slow of heart, Jesus said. Their slow heartedness indicates a failure to believe what God has spoken through the prophets as well as what Jesus spoke through His own earthly ministry. And so Jesus reminds them in verse In verse 25, he confronts them. How could you not believe what the prophets have spoken? In verse 26, he begins to to bring them to the general point of what the prophets had spoken. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, the prophets had emphasized that the Christ, the Messiah, as part of his messianic ministry, must suffer. The Messiah could not redeem Israel. As these disciples thought he was about to do, right? They thought the Messiah was about to redeem Israel. What they didn't understand was that the Messiah could not redeem Israel unless he suffered. So consider a passage like Psalm 22, verse 1, which Jesus utters from the cross. My God, my God, how, uh, why have you forsaken me? Or Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Israel's redemption and Messiah's kingdom required his suffering. In fact, again, notice the word that Jesus uses here, the word necessary. It appears many times in these resurrection passages. The word necessary refers to divine necessity. In other words, God mandated, God required that Israel could only be redeemed if Messiah first suffered. Israel's redemption and Messiah's ministry must follow this path. And of course, Jesus, in showing this to them, at the same time proved that he obediently submitted himself to that plan. Jesus didn't try to redeem Israel by short-circuiting God's word. He didn't try to find an alternative path. He humbly and obediently submitted himself to what God had ordained. But the prophets had also foretold that Messiah, following his suffering, would enter into his glory. That's what Jesus says in verse 26. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and, we almost even have the word then, and then enter into his glory? So a passage like Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel sees a vision. And he says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the glory here that's being referred to must mean resurrection. If the Messiah must suffer and die, then the only way that he could be raised, the only way that he could enter into his glory, the only way that he could take possession of his crown and his kingdom would be to rise from the dead. Of course, we know that Jesus taught his disciples this very thing. He had summarized the teaching of the prophets throughout his ministry. For example, Luke chapter 9, verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In fact, Luke records that Jesus said something like this on at least five other occasions. And we know that when the angels explained the resurrection of Jesus to the women at the tomb in verses 6 and 7 of this chapter, they said something similar. These things were needed, needed to happen, needed to occur. So what these disciples have observed, what they have heard, so far thus agrees with what the prophets had foretold centuries before. And then in verse 27, we find out that as they continue to journey on the way to Emmaus, we don't know how long it was. When did Jesus appear along? We don't know all that stuff. But as they're making their journey to Emmaus, it says that Jesus walked through the scriptures, which again, in that time, the New Testament is still happening. So the scriptures are the Old Testament scriptures. It says that Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets from beginning to end. And he began to explain to them what the prophets had said about Messiah and his ministry and how the Messiah must suffer and then be raised from the dead. The word interpret in verse 27 means to unfold the meaning of or to expound or to explain, even to translate. So Jesus is walking through the scripture with these two disciples and as he's doing that, he's unfolding the meaning of what is written in the Old Testament so that they can understand it. Now Luke doesn't give us the account of that teaching. I think that'd be an awesome journey to walk through, right? What if we need to walk with Jesus and hear him teach about the Old Testament and how it pointed to him? And in fact, I'll just say this here, rabbit trail for a second. The early church fathers, before the New Testament was even canonized, they made their presentation of the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. It can be done. We look at it maybe from our perspective and say, man, how do you see Jesus in that? But they did. They saw it. They made it. It was plain to them. They went through the Old Testament scriptures and saw how Jesus fulfilled the very things that were written there. Now, again, we don't have the account of what Jesus said. Luke is just summarizing. But if we go to the book of Acts, I'm not going to make you do that now, but I'm just going to give you a few kind of touch points if you want to follow along later. We can, the, the apostles did that. As they're teaching and preaching about Jesus, as they're interpreting the gospel and how the Messiah must suffer and be raised, they're using the Old Testament. I've already given you three very obvious passages. But if you were to look at, say, Peter's sermon on, at Pentecost, he uses Psalm 16 and 110. Philip, the one who evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch, he uses Isaiah 53. Paul, when he is at uh, Pisidian Antioch, uses Psalms 2 and 6. Isaiah chapter 49 and verse uh, chapter uh, 55. 
and also the book of Habakkuk. We could look to the epistles and see how the uh, Paul and Peter and John, how they explain the significance of the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. We can go and look at Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, before he was being martyred, spoke to the Jewish council, and Paul, when he was in Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 14, how they walked quickly but deliberately through the scriptures to unfold how God's redemptive plan was to work itself out. That the Old Testament was a story that was preparing for and leading to the coming of the Christ. So Jesus here is laying a foundation for these two disciples. It's not just simply a matter of Jesus being alive. Jesus could have really solved their sorrow and brought clarity to their confusion immediately by saying, hey, it's me, right? But he doesn't do that. What is he doing here? He's laying a foundation for that revelation to make sense. It's not just a matter of Jesus being alive. It's a matter of Jesus being alive according to the Word of God. And that's why this should be important to us as well. Because none of us were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And none of us will be eyewitnesses to the resurrection until the day of his return. So how can we be convinced of the resurrection? Well, partly it's because of the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, which are codified in the scriptures, the New Testament. But we also can be convinced of of the resurrection of Christ because the word of God said that this would happen. This is another apologetic argument for the resurrection. That the very things that happened to Jesus were foretold hundreds and even thousands of years before it ever happened. The disciples did not see an apparition. They were not deceived by their senses. They saw the word of God fulfilled before their very eyes. God had promised and had revealed that the Christ would suffer for our sins and then be raised again from the dead. So we ground our faith in Christ, not on our own experience, but because the word of God is true and certain. Jesus fulfilled what God revealed, even when he spoke it centuries before it happened. And so for this reason, the New Testament church must continue to swim in the Old Testament scriptures. We would be remiss if we only read or studied or preached from the New Testament. We'll, God willing, be finishing up Luke here in the next week or two. And so what are we going to do probably after the first of the year? We'll go back to the Old Testament. This is why it's important for us to go back and forth and why I'm convicted to make sure that we're seeing both the Old and the New Testament because they are the Word of God. The Old Testament Scriptures were the church's first Bible. Paul said that his ministry was to make the Word of God, that is the Old Testament Scriptures, fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And what is that mystery? He says, this is Colossians chapter 1 and 2. He says, this mystery is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Christ is the mystery revealed in the Old Testament, but now made plain and evident in the ministry of Jesus. Well, after Jesus reveals himself to his disciples here, in verse 32, they say, after he disappears, after he vanishes, they say that their hearts burned within them while Jesus opened the scriptures to them while traveling on the road. So as Jesus is teaching and explaining, their hearts are stirred up 
their hearts are resonating with what Jesus is saying. And although it doesn't say it, it seems to me that Jesus had convinced them that Christ was indeed raised from the dead and that his suffering on the cross accomplished the redemption they were seeking because the word of God said it. In other words, even if they did not encounter Jesus face to face, it seems to me that they had come to that conclusion that this is what happened. That Jesus, that the Messiah must have suffered and he must have been raised from the dead because that's what the scripture said. That's what the word of God had said. Even when they didn't know that Christ was in their presence, it seems that their dashed hopes had been revived simply on the basis of what the scriptures had taught. Lost hope had been restored even without yet seeing the risen Christ in the flesh. And so the restored hope that Jesus has brought now through the teaching of the Scripture is going to flourish into a full bloom when they recognize that this traveling stranger is the risen Christ in their midst. So let's look at that. Verses 28 to 35. Round this out. Hope revived in the risen Christ. They're walking along the road. Jesus is teaching. They finally come to Emmaus. That's where these two men are. are that's home for these two uh, disciples. Jesus gave them the indication that he's going to be traveling on further. And so they, they really urgently plead with him to come and to, to be their guest, to come and lodge with him. Right? It's, it's getting to be evening time. It's been a long day. They've traveled a long way. It's not safe to travel at night. They want to show their gratitude to this man by bringing him in and meeting his needs, giving him a meal, giving him a place to stay. And so Jesus agrees to stay. The disciples prepare a meal for Jesus in verse, uh, verses 29 and 30. And they let Jesus here act the role of the host. Normally this is, would be the, 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 pers- the person's home. The, the host would be the, the person who lived there at home. But they're giving Jesus a, the opportunity, the, the privilege of, of being the host. They, they're so grateful for what he has taught them. They perceive that he's, he's probably some sort of a, a rabbi, someone worthy of honor. He's the one that's going to, to, to sort of be the host of the meal. And so it says in verse 30 that he, he takes the bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to those two disciples. And so that language and the order of those words appear in the gospel record in a couple of different places. At the feeding of the 5,000, at the Last Supper, this meal for these disciples seems familiar. In fact, it's very possible that if these disciples had gone and to celebrate Passover, they may have celebrated with Jesus. They may have been in the upper room as they were celebrating the Passover together. And so, if that's the case, this would have been their last memory of Jesus. Jesus taking the bread and blessing it and breaking it and, and, and distributing it to his disciples. And so it's in this process of going through the, the breaking of the bread and the distributing that that their eyes, which had been providentially kept from recognizing Jesus in verse 16, are now opened. And in very similar language, it says in verse 31 that they recognized him. This traveling stranger who had buoyed their hope and had convinced them from the scripture that Messiah must suffer and die and be raised on the third day is himself the risen Jesus. But that, that moment in verse 31, that moment of recognition that it says that Jesus vanished from their sights. Now, I'll talk more about that a little bit next week. But when they realized that Jesus had been in their midst 
it confirmed the truthfulness of the scriptures that he had unfolded to them on the road. It says again in verse 32 that their hearts burned because they believed the scriptures. The scriptures had revived their hope that Jesus could be crucified, but yet raised again. In that case, if Jesus really were raised from the dead, their hopes could never be dashed again. Jesus had come indeed to redeem Israel, and he did it the way that God had foretold. They misunderstood it, but Jesus did it the way that God had foretold. Scripture had corrected their faulty understanding and had laid the foundation for them recognizing the risen Jesus and how it could be really him in their presence. With their own, with their hopes revived now, the disciples ignore their own advice. Remember, they told Jesus, come on in. It's late. The day's far gone. You've traveled a lot. Not safe to travel at night. They just dismiss that out of hand and they make a beeline back to Jerusalem, despite the lateness of the hour. And when they arrive in Jerusalem, they find the eleven and the other disciples who were gathered there together. And before they could even get out their report, the eleven, the other disciples, tell them, inform them, that Jesus has risen indeed and appeared to Simon. Now in verse 34, the word indeed there in the Greek means truly or really, in reality. We say it on Easter Sunday though, don't we? He is risen. He is risen indeed. In other words, it's true. It's real. It happened. In other words, the report of the women and the other disciples who had gone to the tomb and saw it empty has now been confirmed. And Jesus' appearance to Simon, Simon Peter, has bolstered it even further. And so then after hearing from the eleven, you know, kind of imagine them kind of getting into there and, you know, breathless and ready to, to kind of share their report before they could even get their words out. The eleven speak back. Now that things have kind of calmed down, these two Emmaus disciples make their own report in verse 35. They told them everything that had happened on their journey. How the stranger came up, how they recounted their, their crestfallen hopes to him and how this stranger had taught them on the road and when they came to Emmaus, he revealed himself to be the risen Jesus. They had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Well, the appearance of Jesus verified the testimony of the women. They verified the testimony of the disciples that had gone to the tomb. It not only justified what they saw, it explained what they saw. Right? Because up until this point, the resurrection of Jesus was just an unbelievable report, an incredible explanation. But now that Jesus had been seen in the flesh, risen from the dead... The rumors were confirmed. Jesus is indeed alive. His own disciples bear witness to that fact. I couldn't help but think about how John opens his first letter. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. That which was from the beginning, Christ, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy, our joy, may be complete. It all comes full circle, doesn't it, Bruce? Sing for joy. Why are we joyful? Because Christ is risen from the dead. 
Our joy is complete because Christ is risen from the dead. And I can only imagine the kind of joy these two disciples had when they discovered that. Yes, our joy and our hope are complete because Jesus is raised from the dead. May his resurrection be transforming us more and more into his image. And may we walk in its truth and life and power. And even more, let us proclaim it as the hope of salvation to all who have lost hope because of their sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. It is more sure than the ground that we stand upon. Though this world will pass away, your word abides forever. We thank you that we stand upon that word. We thank you, Lord, that all that has happened for Jesus, the one who came to redeem us, the one who is our hope, is true. You revealed it, you announced it, you promised it. It came to pass just as you said. And so now, Lord, we ask you to help us to walk in his resurrection way, in the resurrection truth, with resurrection power, so we might have this resurrection life that you've promised us. Lord, this is good news. It cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. It cannot be undone. It cannot be overcome. And so today I pray, Lord, that your people would have hope and have joy because of it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.